Hello, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Stuart Lander, and I'm delighted to have on stage with me now for the next 25 or so minutes Ambassador Michael McFall. Many of you will know Ambassador McFall uh, for his time as the US Ambassador to the Russian Federation between 2012 to 2014. That's right. Um, since leaving uh, his tenure, uh, you have been put on the sanctions list by Russia. You're not allowed to travel there anymore. Correct. Uh, I think Thanks you for have, reminding me. <laughs> I think you've been personally targeted by uh, Vladimir Putin. Yes. He wants to question you for some, uh, some dubious criminal activities. Alleged dubious Alleged. criminal activity, please. Alleged yes. dubious uh, activities. <laughs> um, and we'll get to talk about some of your time as ambassador. Okay. Uh, what people might know less about you is for the three years before you worked in the Obama administration, you were special advisor to President Obama, and you were senior director for Russian Eurasian Affairs at the National Security Council. That's right. You were the architect of what we know as the reset, a period of extremely collaborative relations with Russia, where you achieved a bunch of amazing things like the New START Treaty. I think you reduced uh, um, significantly nuclear missile launches uh, in the world. Um, and one of the things that uh, struck me from your period, as someone that has worked in business for the last 20 years and doesn't really always think about what it's like to work in government, was how grueling a time that was for you, those three years. Uh -huh. The hours you put in, the minutiae of detail into phone calls and meetings. Can you tell Stuart's read my book? Isn't that impressive? <laughs> and, you know, I think after three years, you were pretty spent. Right. Intellectually, probably physically as well. Mm -hmm. You were packed your bags, ready to go back to Stanford where you're a professor today. But the boss, as you call him, President Obama, had other ideas for you. He wanted you to be ambassador to Russia. How difficult a decision was that for you? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me here. Uh, last time I was at the Rose Bowl, Stanford beat Wisconsin. I don't know if anybody was at that game in 2013, so it's good to be back. Um, kind of daunting to be an ambassador and professor with this lineup that you have here. So thanks for having me. Um, but to answer your question, it, it was a hard decision in, in, for a couple of reasons. One, I think not, a lot of people don't understand that outsiders like me, uh, when we come in as political appointees, that's what we're called, to work at the White House, um, and by the way, it was a fantastic job to work for Barack Obama. If you ever get the chance, take it. Uh, he was a fantastic boss in so many ways. We'll come back to him maybe later. Uh, but I worked on his campaign. You know, we won. Uh, he was sworn in on January 20th, and I started at the White House on January 21st, and we had a great run. And as you point out, back then, a lot of people forget we were getting a lot done in U.S.-Russian relations. Um, but I had always said to my family, two years, that the normal uh, professor spends about 18 months in the government. And after two years, you have to start petitioning your university to stay. They didn't want to move. I mean, Washington's fine, but it's no Palo Alto. Uh, I was gone most nights, right? I, I barely saw my family. So it was always a deal we're going back in the summer of 2011. And then one day, uh, I heard from my immediate boss, a guy named Tom Donlan, said, hey, you can't leave now, Mike. We're doing all this great work, and the boss doesn't want you to leave. And then I went home, and I don't, I'm not going to call her uh, the boss. She hates that. But my wife said, uh, you promised us two years, man. Um, and the negotiations between those two spaces, well, what about staying on the team but do a more family-friendly job? 
And that's when they decided, Obama decided, why don't you go to Moscow? And by the way, by the way, at the t it was a more family-friendly job. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Uh, Washington doesn't wake up till 5 p.m., right? Uh, and in Moscow, I'm the boss, right? There's nobody above me there. Uh, White House, I was staff. Uh, and that's how I ended up in Moscow. Got so it. it was really kind of an accident of that negotiation. Got it. And when you left Washington, you were Mr. Reset. Yes. You, I'm sure, had developed hugely cooperative relations with many senior Russian officials. That's right. Almost immediately you get off the plane, you're Mr. Revolution, and you um, encounter hostility probably like no other U.S. ambassador has ever received before. Why you and what kind of harassment were you actually under? Well, I'm glad you said that because it really felt like we left Washington. We were all giddy. My kids are coming. We're going to live in this big mansion. And for those of you who pay your taxes, thank you for that. Um, and the first couple days that were really exciting. We're, we're looking at all the photos in this house and it's Kissinger and Ronald Reagan and Khrushchev. And we're thinking this is going to be really exciting. And I remember it was Martin Luther King weekend, so we had one more day. And that Sunday night, I turned on the TV because I wanted to get my Russian going again. I'd lived in Russia many, many times, right? I'd lived there, first time was 1983. Right. So this wasn't my first rodeo in Russia, but first time as ambassador. And that was my first experience with what we now call disinformation about me. And it was a hit job, it was about 18 minutes long, and it was explaining to the Russian people, kind of on the, the equivalent of, a, of our 60 Minutes, right? A television program, very popular that Barack Obama had sent me to Russia to foment revolution against Vladimir Putin. That was the day before I even had reported wow. to the embassy. And for the rest of my time there, uh, you know, I was the poster child for that propaganda against us. Now you asked why me? Uh, in part it was just that I was the US ambassador. There was at the time massive demonstrations against Vladimir Putin. There had been a parliamentary election a few weeks before I had arrived. It was falsified, kind of normal, five, six percent. We thought no big deal. But this time around, because of the contact day and Facebook and Twitter and smartphones, people captured it. And they said, we don't want to take this anymore, right? One of the chants, by the way, was uh, no more taxation without representation. Remember that, that one? Uh, you're not going to steal our money unless we have a say in our government. And right as all that was going on, I arrived as ambassador. And Putin needed an argument to, to explain why these people were uh, protesting against him, to mobilize his base and to marginalize the opposition. But there's one more piece of it, because some of those leaders of the opposition were actually people that I met when I lived in the Soviet Union. And the year the Soviet Union collapsed, 1991, I was living in Moscow. And a lot of those people were my friends. And so that made it an easier narrative for him to spin about me. How bad did it get? Well, the propaganda was horrible because, you know, and this is related to our times right now as we deal with uh, disinformation uh, in our politics. How do you prove that you're not giving money to the opposition, right? How do you prove something that doesn't exist? So one of their arguments was I was there to hand out money to the opposition. And they would have little photos of them coming to see me. Uh, one day I was at an anniversary celebration of a newspaper and an opposition figure uh, walked in, his name's Alexei Navalny. We shook hands for seven seconds and then, oh, there's a secret deal done there. And it's actually pretty hard to fight 
a false narrative when they make up things about you. All the more so because Putin has all the television shows, uh, networks, uh, all the media's in his hand, and I just got my little Twitter account, right? Uh, so there was an asymmetry there, and I wanna, you know, we tried, we did a lot of experimental things. We tried just to talk a lot about facts, be open about everything. Uh, but I came away from that experience pretty bitter, you know? In the Cold War days, we used to study propaganda, and we used to fight propaganda. We got out of that habit after the end of the Cold War, and I came back after that experience thinking, you know, disinformation works, propaganda works, and now we're seeing that here in the United States. And you help us understand, we all know that disinformation exists today. We hear about it, we hear about fake news, no one's ever sure what is real, what is not real. How does it actually work? The Russians are the pioneers of disinformation. Yes. How does it work and what's the objective? Well, Putin's objective is different from the communists. So the communists wanted to win an argument with us, right? Capitalism versus communism, you know, their system of democracy versus ours. They would play their own rules, but they were trying to win an argument. They weren't, they weren't constrained by the facts, but they, they were trying to win an argument. Putin's very cynical. He's not trying to win an argument. He's trying to make the case that there are no facts, that it's all manipulated. You know, Barack Obama can call the, the networks and they'll say what he wants just like Putin does. Um, whataboutism, he loves whataboutism. You invaded Crimea, you know, we'd say to him, well, you annexed Crimea, that's against the rules. And he'd say, what about Kosovo? What about New Mexico? You know, going all the way back to the 19th century. So he, he plays that kind of game where he wants to just create the idea that there are no facts. But then you, act, you asked a question about modalities. And this is, a, I think, you know, we're living through this right now, in my view, with the, the Hunter Biden stuff. So in my case, the, without question, one of the worst days of my time as ambassador was when, it was like three weeks in, right? February 2012, uh, a video appeared that suggested that I was a pedophile. And wow. it was kind of cutesy, it was, you know, and of course the government said, we have free press here, Mike, we had nothing to do with this. Yeah, right. Um, but it's a tricky space. So we were all shocked, you know, watching this stupid video. How do you respond? You, you like get on Twitter and you get in some argument with some Vladimir saying, I'm not a pedophile. Yes, you are. Prove you're not a pedophile. How do you do that, right? right? right. How do you prove something that doesn't exist? Right. right. But now notice, I just did something that many experts would say you should never do. I just, with a bunch of strangers who I can't even see, just use the word pedophile and McFall in the same sentence. What did I just do there? I just created a new artifact that will now, you know, and I hope most of you believe me when I say I'm not a pedophile, um, but you know, it's gonna linger out there, it's gonna kick around, and, and that's how disinformation works, right? So when, when they said, Hillary and her emails, right? There was no evidence that any wrong, you know, the, the final verdict on that came out a few months ago. Nobody saw it. It was on page 23. But you just throw it out there. You just throw it out there. And academics at Stanford have studied this. That, that meme completely dominated the, 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 the argument between Trump and Clinton in 2016. On the Trump side, by the way, there were like 15, 25 different things that he did. Uh, but there were so many of them that none of them stuck. And, and I think we're seeing that again, you know, this Biden, Burisma, Biden, Burisma, you know, we are now doing in the Senate impeachment trial, 
what they wanted Zelensky to do for them before. Right. So it's so pervasive now. Uh, is it the norm? Is it going to be the norm for the next decades and decades to come? Or is there something that we can all do uh, in this room and a society to prevent it? Because the future looks bleak if uh, disinformation continues as it, as it is today. Well, in the short term, I'm pretty pessimistic because obviously we're dealing with a massive disruption in the way that pe people consume information. I've been listening to that here at your conference today. Uh, and we, the technology is way ahead of the norms, way ahead of the ethics, and most certainly ahead of the rules and regulations and maybe laws. So we're in that weird space. Uh, we at Stanford, I mean, I'm, I'm part of a consortium, a group that studies this and writes about it. Um, uh, you know, and I would say our prognosis is the next cycle is going to be really messy because Putin's playbook is going to be used by other countries right, right. and other high school kids in Palo Alto. But, you know, I mean, they're, they're going to be doing that too. And we're, we're in a weird world where uh, it's hard to know what's disinformation, what's not. Um, my own view is that those of us who work at institutions that have some credibility, and even academic institutions are falling, if you look at the data in the, Demo in the Republican Party especially, uh, but, but compared to a lot of other institutions, we still have that. We gotta get more engaged. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm here with you right now. You know, this is not a normal gig for a Stanford professor, just so you know, um, but Twitter and, and television too. Uh, you know, at Stanford, facts matter every day. Two plus two equals four every day not just Tuesdays and Thursdays. And you can't survive in academia. You know, we're, the scientific method is right. what drives what we do. I think we gotta get more involved. Right. And I also think the platform companies also have to, you know, it would be nice if they could pretend they're utilities and say, we don't have any dog in this game. Uh, I just think that era's over. And I think they gotta just put some norms out there. This is what we believe in. And then let the chips fall where they may. Yeah, to totally. I want to shift gears for a minute and talk about Putin because I, I doubt anyone has been in a room with Putin have you? in this room, but you have. I have not. Okay. Um, and we, I guess I have a sense of what Putin might be like, but I don't really know. Is he cold, mean, maybe evil, or is he a warm, charismatic leader? What's it like being in a room with him? And how do you deal with him? So I first met Vladimir Putin in the, the spring of 1991. So we go way back. Uh, not exactly Facebook friends, but um, although who knows, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> that Natasha who's always tormenting me at night, that's actually Vladimir Putin. Um, I got a lot of trolls that follow me. Uh, check me out, at McFall on Twitter especially. It's pretty active in Russian especially. Um, um, so, uh, you know, when I first met him, I'll be honest, I, uh, had you asked me back then, name 500 people that might be the next president of Russia, he would not have made my list. Right. Completely nondescript guy, bureaucrat, KGB guy. He was the deputy mayor at the time for international contacts. I was an international contact, and so that's how we met. And I, I think it's important for people to understand about Putin and Russia. He was a completely accidental president. There was no groundswell of support for him. Uh, he was picked by, by Boris Yeltsin out of obscurity to be prime minister and then become president, right? Uh, so that's the first thing to understand about. Over time, he's developed a charismatic personality. It wasn't there before. Two, he's a very smart guy. He does his homework for those meetings. So subsequently, I've been in meetings with him with President Obama, 
Vice does he President speak Biden. He does, but not well. Uh, but I speak Russian, so right. I, I, I can hear him twice. That's always a big advantage. Uh, by the way, just because <laughs> you know we have a president these days that just likes to meet with him one on one. Um, I, I, that's a really bad idea um, for a couple of reasons. One, he comes prepared, right? He's, he's not just here for a chit-chat. He right. is trying to achieve something in his meeting with Obama or Biden or Clinton or whoever he's meeting with. Number two, he's been at the job for 20 years. Right. So he's rolling into that meeting with a lot of experience. I remember driving out to his house with President Obama in 2009. Obama's a pretty smart guy. He's one of the smartest people I've ever known. Uh, pretty confident guy too. Uh, he was a little nervous rolling into his first meeting with Putin, and rightfully so, because he knew this guy was coming to, to you know, he prepared him, believe me, he did. And he plays mind games with you. Remember, he's a counterintelligence officer. He ran spies for a living. So he, if he was here, he would have done all kinds of research on you, including some databases that you don't have. Um, and he would be playing on that all the time. He did that with Obama and these other people most certainly did it with Trump. Um, third, he's very paranoid. He's an extremely paranoid guy. I used to think when they would run all this, this stuff on me on TV, I was like, okay, I, I get politics. I worked on a campaign. Uh, they got a, he was running for president at the time. You know, you need a boogeyman. I got it. I actually went and met with one of his campaign strategists, somebody I'd known for 20 years. Um, I won't name him um, in case he might, he's looking for a job now, he just got fired in the Kremlin. Uh, and he's interested in you know, new opportunities in the West. Um, um, uh, Surkoff is his name. Uh, don't hire him. <laughs> uh, but he's a really brilliant guy, seriously. He's, you, you guys were just talking about big data and using data. He was like one of the first guys to do that in elections. And he, he came to me and said, Mike, you know, I, you know, I know that, that pedophile thing. You know, maybe that wasn't so nice, but come on, man. We're, we're all friends here. We, this, this is business, right? You know, we're out to win elections. It'll all settle down later. Don't worry about it. And um, I remember that conversation. Putin won. And it did die down for a while, but then it peaked up. And, and you asked me, harassment would increase from time to time. And when I started as ambassador, we would have this debate with with President Obama usually. It's like, does he really believe all this, right. this stuff he's putting out? And I used to be in the, the first camp that no, it's just instrumental. Today I'm in the second interesting, camp. Interesting, interesting. He believes it. He, has a, he thinks our CIA can do all kinds of amazing things that they can't do. By the way, they can do a lot of amazing things, but they can't do all the things that Putin thinks. And fundamentally, because he's an autocrat, he worries about the people. Got it. And that makes him paranoid. And, and so, Following on from that, has Trump delivered for him? We all know that he wanted Trump to win the election. Yes. Has Trump delivered for him? And if he was to give Trump a grade today, what would that grade be? Well, first, he wanted him to win, and he tried to help him win, audaciously, right? By, by the way, even during the height of the Cold War, nothing like what happened in 2016 ever happened in our elections. Remember that about Putin. He's, he, whatever cards he has, uh, he's got a lot of confidence right now, and he was very aggressive in 2016. And he hates Hillary Clinton. Don't forget that. That's right. part of what he did. Right. You know, I think they all celebrated when Trump was elected. It was a big party. I got lots of, lots of emails from all kinds of people. You know, our guy won, your, guy lost, your, your gal lost. They didn't call her gal. They called her something else, not so polite. Um, 
You know, initially they were hoping for immediate payback. They wanted the sanctions lifted. He right. said during the campaign he was going to lift the sanctions. And because we're a democracy uh, and the U.S. Congress would not let him do that, he didn't deliver on that. On some people he has, but generally he didn't deliver on that. He didn't blow up NATO yet, didn't deliver on that. He didn't recognize Crimea. He joked that he might do that during the campaign. So on those very tangible things, he didn't deliver. But on the big thing, he's been a massive uh, asset uh, in terms of Putin because he's weakened us abroad. We're spending all our time fighting with each other, right? Mm -hmm. That means we're not focused on the things that Putin's doing inside his country. That means we're not helping Ukraine. I mean, this Ukraine thing, uh, we had a bipartisan consensus that we were going to support Ukraine when I was in the government. It's completely demolished now. So on the bigger picture, making us look weak around the world, he has delivered. So great. Uh, I think he's pretty pleased, A minus. So I, it would be remiss of me not to ask you this important question. What's your explanation for the dynamic between the two of them, Trump and Putin? Why is Trump consistently conciliatory towards him? The title of this session is about compromise, compromising materials, another <laughs> Russian, Russian In thing. other words, this is a very leading question, yes. <laughs> Do you believe that there is compromising material on Trump and others within the government in the United States? Well, I want to back up and I want to underscore how absolutely unusual this situation is. Um, never, I, I think about Democrats, Republicans, that I, administrations I've known and ones that I've written about as an academic. I cannot remember a policy issue where you had broad agreement in the administration about what to do, which is basically to contain Putin, and the president disagreed with everybody. And I mean everybody, folks. You know, why is he on his fourth national security advisor? Because none of those people agreed with him. Secretary Mattis didn't agree with him. Pompeo doesn't agree with him. I, there's not a single person that I know, either former or in the government, who works on national security that thinks that Trump has the right policy. That, so that's why it's so weird, right? Um, I can't answer your question. Uh, let me tell you what I know and what I don't know. I'll, I'll try to be brief. What you can tell us and what you can't well, tell and, and, and something that I don't know. Uh, does Putin use compromise to rule Russia? The answer to that is yes. Everything is about leverage with Putin. Uh, you know, uh, either the, the kind of honeypot stuff that we all seen in the movies, but it's mostly about money. I'm going to let you do something. I'm going to give you a property. I'm going to let you keep your house in London if you're a government official, even though that's illegal. But in return, you're completely loyalty to me, right? So that's his box of compromise. That's the way he rules Russia. So when Mr. Mueller started to investigate uh, financial ties between Russians and the Trump Organization, and he, he had a big operation. I thought he was looking into that, and I was surprised that in the public report how thin it was on that. My, I assumed that there was going to be more to that, and I don't know, was it, is it in the classified part, or did they not find anything, or did it get shut down? I don't know, but I would have thought there was going to be more there. And to the more th I can tell you want me to talk about things I don't want to talk about, um, let me tell as an anecdote in my book. How about this as a, uh, a roundabout way? Um, when when uh, businessman Trump came to Russia in 2013, uh, he stayed at the Ritz-Carlton. 
I was the U.S. ambassador at the time. By the way, usually when uh, prominent business people come through uh, to Moscow, we would make a decision whether we would host them. Uh, we hosted eBay. We hosted all kinds of companies. We decided Miss Universe is not a good look for the uh, Obama administration. Uh, my Marines were really disappointed in that, that we did not have that party, but we decided we didn't want to do that. So I did not meet with him there. But he stayed at the Ritz-Carlton. Um, I've stayed at the Ritz-Carlton with President Obama, with Vice President uh, Biden, and with Clinton, actually, all three of them, when I worked at the White House. And I remember when we went over there, July 2009, and when I first saw this contraption, it was like a, like a submarine with really thick walls with our own power supply, completely disconnected from the outside. We played this wild, it was usually Led Zeppelin, by the way, this weird, you know, uh, background distorted music. And we did that, and that's where we would go to talk to President Obama wow. to have a confidential conversation. How did they get the materials in? Shipped it all in and shipped it all back. Millions of dollars were spent for these. In like you know, diplomatic pouch? Diplomatic type. pouch. Wow. And I, was, I, I asked these exact same questions, like, really, we did all this for two days in Moscow? And, that's, and I tell you that story because everything that happens in the Ritz-Carlton is recorded. If you stay there, be, I just warned you, not only the Ritz-Carlton, but especially the Ritz-Carlton. So I don't know what, what happened in the Ritz-Carlton, but whatever happened there, Putin has it. I have one last question for you. As we look towards the future, and there's an election coming up later on this year, and the chance that Trump wins a second term, is it possible that Putin is Trump's playbook? Is it conceivable that if Trump were to win a second election, that he could, over time, try to move the US from a democracy to an autocracy? Because I don't think we could have looked back at Putin as an accidental president, right. as you said before, right. wielding the immense amount of power he does today, having just changed the constitution a week or so ago. Right, you're absolutely right. We Is it conceivable right. in your mind? Is he a playbook for Trump? Does he aspire to do that? And maybe even, like, like sometimes I get the sense that our president doesn't even understand right from wrong sometimes, right? Like that perfect call, what's wrong with it? I, I, I really think, you know, we could go on, we won't go on for this a long time, but sometimes I feel like he just doesn't even get it, which makes me nervous about it. And remember, if he gets an electoral mandate a second time, he's gonna, all the smart people around him that told him how to govern, he's gonna be, you know, I got this folks. Right. I don't need you to tell me how to deal with Vladimir Putin. That makes me nervous, especially about foreign policy, because the Constitution does not constrain him on foreign policy. But you asked a different question about our own democracy. I'm cautiously optimistic, um, because we do have robust institutions, we do have the rule of law, but it's all, and then I'm gonna just put this back on you. Um, Adam Schiff said it the other day, you can have the brilliant Constitution. Russia had a really pretty Constitution right. in 2000. But the people did not demand that it be adhered to. And, and I think that if, ha if that happens and you care about democracy, you got to be busy, folks. you got to be busy every single day to make sure that that doesn't happen. So a message to this audience is? This audience especially, yes. We all, Democrats, Republicans, I don't care what your political views are, 
but we all have a long-term interest in preserving our democracy, but it's gonna take some work. It's not gonna happen just on its own. Thank you very much. Thank you. Everyone, thank you, Ambassador Michael McFaul. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much.